it's time for a healthy Which breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate treat? Two pizzas for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. That's a spicy meat. $3.30 a day. You realize that you were on the bottom end of humanity and you were treated as such. Welcome to The Secret Ingredient, a podcast that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. I'm Raj Patel from the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. And I'm Tom Philpot from Mother Jones Magazine. The secret ingredient in today's episode is the prison industrial complex, or maybe more precisely, prison labor on farms. I mean, it is an ingredient in the food system because a substantial amount of the food produced in the United States comes from workers who are imprisoned. And prison labor is something that the food industry goes to in times of labor shortage. Like right now, there's this massive ongoing immigrant crackdown going on. And it's not uncommon in agriculture-intensive areas for farm owners to say, well, there's not enough immigrants coming in. Let's see what sort of labor we can get from prisoners. And to talk about the prison industrial complex, we have someone on who's an organic farmer in Vidalia, Georgia, who also has experience working in a prison farm. And his name is Jahi Ellis. Uh, welcome to The Secret Ingredient, Jahi. Thank you, guys. So I wonder if you could start us off by talking us through your experience in the prison industrial complex. What sort of work you did, how you got into it, what it was like. Well, in 1997, I was convicted of second-degree murder for simply fighting off a carjacker that tried to rob me. And unfortunately, he died during the struggle. So had a degree in agriculture, have a farm in Vidalia, Georgia, as you mentioned, that's been in my family 146 years now. So I knew that at some point in time, if I was blessed to get out of that dismal crib, I would be able to come back to my farm. So I was really excited to hear about any programs within Michigan Department of Corrections where I was housed that would offer that. So over my almost 14-year sentence, I had the opportunity to be at two different locations. They offered a horticulture program, and it was a new and beginning program. So I was the first horticulture tutor assigned to that program. And that gave me a lot of therapeutic energy to kind of, you know, get away from the mundane life of prison. But then later in my sentence, I was able to go to a place called Marquette, Michigan, where they have what they call the mag farm, which deals with beef cattle. And then they have the dairy farm, which deals with milk and other products. So that experience was really deep. It was the typical, not really grass-fed, but just feedlot type of situation where they were beefing them up real fast. But the blessing of that was we got to eat that meat and eat a better quality of food. And then the animal husbandry part, it gave me experience to learn how to deal with cattle on a much different level for me, but just, you know, handling cattle and dealing with cattle and the process of taking them all the way through. So... I think we only got paid, because I had a degree, I got to top in the pay, which was approximately, I think, about 330 a day, $3.30 a day. And the same with the dairy farm, which was joining. They had two different farms. That was a very nasty job, very cold, and I didn't like that at all. You know, guys had to get up in the wee hours of the morning, and, and up in Marquette, it's extremely cold. So... 
I didn't have much of a time to experience that. I dealt mainly on the mag farm. Right. And this meat and milk, I'm guessing that you were producing way more than the prison itself could consume. And so it was going off into the community, right? Yeah, we had our own slaughterhouse there and butchers. I also worked in the butcher department. So I've seen the whole process and they would uh, freeze them up and send out half cows. And I'm sure they, I wasn't privy to what they made or, you know, who it went to. But yeah, of course, it was much more uh, meat beer and milk being produced that was supplied for us. And so it sounds like it had some sort of therapeutic value that you were able to do useful work. You weren't just sitting around in a cell. But what was it like to do all that work and get paid $3 and, you know, some odd cents a day? Well, you know, for me, I had mixed emotions about it. I was just happy to be able to do something that I knew I would later be involved with. In particular, I got more gratification from doing the horticulture department where we were growing vegetables and herbs, which we were able to use in our meals, you know, because basically you couldn't get fresh vegetables. Another part of this thing is that working in the child hall, I saw that we would get a much lower grade and someone broke it down that you have the high-end stuff where goes to high-end restaurants, and then it goes to institutional places like hospitals and, you know, big cafeterias and schools, and then it was something else between that, but then the bottom end would be zoo food. So this is the food that they would give to the animals at the different zoos. Wow. Yeah, so, for example, broccoli wouldn't have any florets on it. It would just be all stems. The oranges, if they we got oranges or, or apples, they would be, you know, of a low, low grade, and you could tell that they were the bottom end of the barrel. And that was systematic with all of our food. So to be able to have a fresh vegetable or some fresh herbs to put in food that we normally wouldn't have, um, we didn't have seasoning other than salt and pepper, you know. So just to have a different flavors, and that was, you know, guys got very excited about that, you know, the little things for us. And regarding the pay, I knew, and I looked up, I started researching and saw where, you know, companies like American Airlines, Lexus, and different parts of the country, Boeing Airlines, they all would use prison labor to do that work. I worked in another place, it's not food, but it was a garment factory. And so they made clothes for society. So you had to be on the lower end of the rung of humanity and getting a dollar or $2 a meat, a top end of three, $3.30 a day. You feel like you're not a citizen or you're not human even, you know, to be get paid like that. And then there was other things that just was a cumulative effect of, you know, health care and other things that, you know, just you realize that you were on the bottom end of humanity and you were treated as such. Well, Jai, can, can I ask you about that? I mean, because certainly in butchery and in uh, in the meat industry, there's a lot of occupational injury. And even for a workforce that's not incarcerated, uh, the conditions uh, are pretty awful. And I'm wondering if, if you can maybe tell us uh, some of the experiences you either experienced or you saw of how workers were treated on that meat production line. That's deep in itself because you have two phases to that. First of all, the administration, you know, again, didn't treat you like a human being. So... You wouldn't get the safety stuff, and um, we did have these, uh, in the butcher market, we would have to have these, like, metal gloves, so you wouldn't cut yourself, because it's, it's cold in there, and guys are working at a pretty rapid pace, you know, because they're pushing you. But on the flip side of that, can you imagine having, you know, a murderer over here, and a, this over there, and a 
armed robber over there, and they get into it, and they got butcher knives about a foot long. Right. You know, so I've I've seen that, you know, where, you know, now that takes a fight to a whole nother level. <laughs> yeah. For inmate and uh, correctional officers. So they would have to vet pretty good about who they're letting into the butcher department. But still, you know, I was witness of, you know, two guys fighting with knives and one got stabbed pretty bad. When you put yourself in those type of situations, when the, I say the administration puts guys in those type of situations and you're dealing with what you're dealing with, you know, and it's, it's a very dangerous situation. They can get just as dangerous as the correctional officer. But, you know, as far as cutting meat and stuff like that, you really had to be careful because there wasn't a lot of safety precautions. They had to have some in place. But, you know, how that if things, you know, get worn out, they don't replace it right away. And, you know, and so there are situations where you can get really, really hurt. You're saying that the, the, they push you pretty hard. Was was it someone from the private sector who was responsible for that, or was this this all state-run? I mean, in general, in the food system, when prison labor is involved, about 75% of it is all state-run. But I'm curious about whether you saw, was it a private meat industry? Was, was there a contractor? or I mean, insofar as you were able to see what was going on, what did you notice? Well, you know, for the most part, they try to keep all that, that away from us. And it's basically state-run, and you would see... A guard that will be in the room with us and then a supervisor and then some type of upper rank would, you know, come through every now and then to make sure that everything was okay. But I did see from time to time some other folks coming in. Now, who they were, I'm not sure, but they would keep the private side away from us as best as possible. Now, some clerks who were doing the paperwork, they would be more privy to that information. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about when you were released and what your life was like kind of getting back to farming when you got out of prison? Mm. Well, first of all, once I returned home and I came to my dad's house, my mom had passed about 18 months before my release. And it was just so surreal for her not to be there, for me to be home but honestly, I tell folks this is coming back to a city like Detroit, my hometown, it was like I was still incarcerated. It wasn't until I took my first journey to the farm and was standing on my ancestral land that I truly felt free again. And the transition was very difficult. It was just a couple good folks that knew me from Detroit and they reached out to folks within different organizations and one of the first organizations I connected with was Staffan and Miss Cynthia Hayes. She's deceased now. But she, you know, once I called her and her husband, Terry Hayes, they were here, I think, within about two days and videoing me and interviewing me and supporting me. So that was huge for me because I gave a speech at, I got an award, the um, Family Farm Defender Award a couple of years ago, and they flew me out to Madison, Wisconsin. And, of course, they wanted me to speak. And so I was talking about the different programs like NRCS and FSA, local extensions of the USDA program. And I had to talk about and I had to stop and explain what I meant, but a lot of people truly understood. And that's the term socially disadvantaged farmer. I speak for myself. I'm not a socially disadvantaged. I might be financially disadvantaged. Socially, I can get along with anyone. So that term socially disadvantaged farmer really annoys me, as you see. But getting involved with NRCS was 
very, very frustrated, and even with the support of the Sapphire and other organizations, because they have two little brackets that I, I fell up under, both of them, new and beginning farmer and socially disadvantaged farmer. So when I returned home, most of well, all the equipment was gone. So I had to pretty much kind of do things by hand, which was extremely hard. I could do it up north where the weather was, you know, kind of okay. You know, it wasn't too extreme, except in the wintertime. But here, you know, to try to work with under 115-degree temperatures, gnats all over you, mosquitoes all over you, ticks biting you, fleas biting you. So that was new to me. And then just being in the South was extremely and is still extremely difficult for me. Organic is not a big thing down here. Matter of fact, they look at you like you're partly crazy when you start to mention organic or use that term. So folks here are very dependent on Roundup and Mm. that type of stuff. And so uh, I kind of understand it because when we did the organic peanut project this year and couldn't use, you know, pesticides or herbicides or anything, very, very challenging to do this and try to beat the weeds. And so I get why they do it, but, you know, the end result, you know, what we put into our food and, and then put into our body is is what we are now. So I understand that folks back in the day, this is how they grew anyway. It's just you're using this new term organic, but at the same time, they had to work hard. And that's what it takes to really be into to organic uh, food production. There's no magic pill. You have to, you know, pull away from all the stuff that's conventional farmers. So I, I didn't get any support whatsoever. I would have to go miles and miles and miles to Atlanta or to Savannah or, you know, to the big cities to even have conversations with folks about organic growing methods here in the South. And it, it also, I mean, I know that it takes a lot of loans to be a farmer. Like you have to borrow money and then you pay it back and then you borrow money and you pay it back. And what was the process like for you trying to borrow money after you got out of prison? Mm. You don't need a longer podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it was, again, extremely rough. So I knew that if I only had a chance, I would fight and be successful. I try to be successful, be successful on the land, but Coming straight out of the Michigan Department of Corrections, I didn't have any money, but I thought I had equity on the land, 100-plus acres and no liens on it, nothing. So as I navigated through the loaning institutions, after I found out after 2007 when the housing crisis, they changed the rules and laws and stuff. So I had to have much a lot more things that I didn't have in place, like bank statements, W-2s, whatever is now necessary to, you know, get loans. But also I was in the courthouse trying to keep them from taking the land at a tax sale. And I filed some different things and I guess they wasn't familiar with what I filed. I just filed some affidavits and stuff like that. And which are, you know, totally legal. Well, I caused such a stir that they brought in a lawyer and he asked me questions about what I was doing. And I finally had to say, excuse me, who are you? And he named his name, and I said, and your purpose for being here? And he said, well, they called me. I said, well, correct, they called you. I'm I'm okay. I know what to do, and I know what I'm trying to do. So it must have pissed him off real bad because later um, I was going after a loan, after going through all this area here, no one would do it. I was going to get a loan out of a company out of California. 
being that the land is 146 years or at that time about 140 years and there was a tax sale I had to get the title work straightened out and so they wrote a letter to like five different real estate lawyers one of them which was the lawyer that was in the courthouse you know questioning about me filing me filing and he sent back a fax that had my prison record picture and all and some filings I, I filed, which were, you know, affidavits, allodial titles, just trying to, you know, preserve what, what's been in my family. Uh, nothing illegal. And on the cover sheet, he had enjoy, you know. So he intentionally sabotaged me, which stopped me from getting that loan. So the fact that, you know, you're a newer beginning farmer and, you know, you might come down with some retirement money, or it's still challenging. But when you uh, ex felon and you you know you're black and you hear from the north you know I got a lot of things going on in terms of me being back here where you're getting sabotaged as well so that really opened my eyes the other thing that really opened my eyes about being down here in the south is that during the tax sale they had took some land but they had highway frontal property big field 40 acres they could have you know took and developed or whatever Instead, they take my ancestral home, 100-plus-year-old home, and 100-plus-year-old cemetery. And to me, that's like you're trying to gut me. You're trying to take everything from me. Without the ancestral cemetery and not without the ancestral home, I have nothing really but a piece of land. And so I really understood, you know, what I'm dealing with after that, you know, situation. I was able to get the house and the cemetery back, but I had to pay 20% plus whatever they put into it, trying to put a materials and a lien on me. So... And this was the state of Georgia? This is the state of Georgia, the county of Montgomery County. And so, and also, <laughs> I was talking to a gentleman. He's a prominent gentleman here, older gentleman. And he walked up to me, and apparently he knew who I was, and he said, you're not going to speak to me, huh? And I didn't know him from Adam. And I heard somebody mention his name, and my family had talked about him, and I've seen documents with his name on it. And I said, oh, okay, I know who you are. And we shook and talked. And he said, let me give you a little piece of advice. He said, you do realize that this is where the Ku Klux Klan and the mafia originated. And to me, it was like a threat. But for me, you have to come much harder to get me to give up on this land, especially with the cemetery with my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, and my great-great-grandmother, and plus a host of other uh, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, aunts and uncles, great-aunts and great-uncles. I can't. I've said it in every one of the interviews that I've been on, not on my watch, where you, you know, bulldoze and desecrate my ancestors' burial ground, or, you know, and just not on my watch. So it's been a deep journey. Yeah. I'd love to hear more of the story of the land there because, you know, that's obviously in the very heart of the, the plantation south. And also in the last, about the last hundred years, Almost all black landowners, black farm owners have had their land basically taken away from them. And, you know, it's true that in the United States, all farmers, we've seen for about 100 years, this incredible failing of family farms and consolidation of farms into small, fewer and fewer hands. But all of that is way more extreme among black farmers. And so tell us about the land and how your family managed to hang on to it against these incredible odds. Wow. <laughs> That's something that I still marvel at. I mean, it just blew me away. How? And even deeper is the fact that I have a cousin 
His brother was a famous football player, a Super Bowl winner, and their family owns 2,000 acres. And both of my sons work for the youth home there uh, right outside of town. And, and when I hear these stories of, you know, we losing so much land, and then I see a family that has preserved their family property for, you know, almost as long as ours, and a large amount, 2,000 acres, that's a pretty good amount, and that's right here. But, you know, I like to sit down at his feet sometimes just to, you know, because he stayed here. You know, he's in his 70s. So he gives me a lot of wisdom about how to navigate through this. One of the tougher things that I've witnessed was actually watching my family property be auctioned off at, on the courthouse steps. And that was probably the most gut-wrenching, soul-pulling experience that I ever felt. And they were bidding. I mean, they were going crazy bidding for the property. So, yeah, being a part of Safon and just, you know, digging deep into the movement of trying to help black folks save their ancestral property. I've heard Eddie Wise's story, and there's just so many more. And then from me being exposed and doing interviews, I get a call from Kansas. And this is a, a organic poultry farmer in Kansas, and they took his property. And it was an ancestral property. He worked to, you know, buy this piece of property and, you know, put up the infrastructure to do the organic poultry. And, you know, they flew over to his place and sprayed it with, you know, non-organic material. And, you know, he lost his certification and they confiscated the birds. And just horror story after horror story after horror story. So, you know... For folks that listening to that in situations like mine or similar, it's a fight that you have to be ready to deal with because it's going to come from all angles. And most of us have, you know, our parents or grandparents were born in the South and we went North, you know, with our families. And a lot of us want to come back, but you have to be conscious of what you're coming back to. Well, one question, though, John, is you get to see – this from a different perspective now. I mean, from being incarcerated in, in Michigan, where, you know, again, I mean, in, in the US, there are 30,000 prison laborers uh, working in the food system right now. And now you're looking from the outside and you're working land. Am I right in, in hearing that you've got a, a hundred acres out there? Yeah. So where, where does the work come from now for you? What sort of relationship to labor do you have now? And who's working on, on your farm? And what, and what are you seeing in terms of farm labor in the South? Well, amongst black folks, I've talked to a lot of young men and men right up under my age that have had to grow up working the fields as five, six, seven, eight. Their parents would make them work the fields. And what happened is, you know, it was almost like child labor back then for them. And so they got to have a true disdain for farming. And the ones who have probably the best experience with tractors, equipment, planning, they don't want any part of it no more. They don't want to go back to the fields. So trying to cultivate a situation where, for me, where I can bring in young men that do, in particularly young men that's coming from the prison industrial complex. So we're trying to set up a program there. But, again, it's brutal working in southeast Georgia in the summertime. I mean, literally brutal. So you have to be of the special mindset to want to deal with that. You know, I'm wondering if you have any, other than Saffron, are there any other organic farming collectives or is there any other organic support 
system that you've been a part of or seen or has helped at all? Yeah, many, but none around this immediate area. Okay. They do have, like, I think it's the Vidalia Onion Research Center have way experimenting with organic Vidalia sweet onions or a little bit of corn. But when I connected with another farmer that I worked with for a couple of years and still stay very connected with, he's an organic blueberry and blackberry farmer. So outside of him, uh, I really don't have anyone in the immediate area to, you know, kind of bounce ideas off and talk with. So it's kind of isolated from that point of view. But, yeah, around the country and other states, Atlanta has a lot, Savannah has a lot, but that requires me to, you know, travel, and, and which I do, because if you want that knowledge and you want that camaraderie and support, you have to go get it. And that's what I'm saying. A lot of folks, they think that it's just ready available. I can't tell you how many times I've been at different workshops around the state in different states, and they pass out the same information, the very same information. So that had become very frustrating to me, but just keep, you know, uh, persevering. I've connected with this person or that person that has really been instrumental in helping me. Now, I think someone had just asked me about what am I growing out here now. We did the organic peanut project. It was a rough year. It rained so much. Um, then when we turned it over, hurricane came through. And then the deer and turkey seemed to love organic peanuts. Oh, boy. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it's nothing left out there. But it was a good experience. And a lot of times, I always say I don't lose. Either I win or I learn. And the harder lessons are the ones that stick the hardest. You know, they really stick. And so it, it was frustrating to do all of that work and didn't get any um, peanuts out of the field. But the feasibility studies, we learned that, you know, not every year is going to be a super rainy year. I have to learn how to manage the weeds much better mechanically and by hand. But once they get to the point where they're out of control, you play in a battle, you're not going to win. No. You mentioned that, you know, people look at you like oddly because you want to do organic farming because the idea is that it's always been organic. Like, why would you make an effort to do this now? You know, but is is there something more to that, that judgment or that kind of perception of doing organic farming in the South? Like, what are the conversations that you have with people about organic foods even just buying organic foods or growing organic foods and why why you would want to do that? Yeah, I mean, like in this area, especially if you talk to the older farmers, black and white, it's like, you know, man, that's some quack stuff. That uh, You know, it's, it's really looked at like, you know, that's crazy, you know. And I think the few folks that have tried it and didn't have, you know, success down here, so the word has got out. And then it's a much harder method of farming. So... You put those two together, I would listen to folks at workshops that we were at, and they would just, you know, blast anything organic. It doesn't taste good, which, you know, it tastes much better than conventional food. It has a lot of disease and pest problems. Well, if you balance and everything, you know, yeah, insect might bite it, but once they bite it and see that it's nothing that has that chemical in it to kind of, you know, make it say, ugh, then, you know, but you have that little blemish. We have gotten so commercialized that we want it to look good. We want it to taste good. We want it to grow fast in any condition. And you put it on this, these pristine 
but you know they have no really very little nutritional value in them. They're loaded with GMO and Roundup type of stuff in it. So you know, aesthetically, we want our food to look absolutely perfect, but yet in nature it doesn't work that way without our heavy hand of chemicals and destruction on it. Hmm. It'll make it look good, and it might make it taste okay. We're so far away from really tasting real food, we don't know what real food tastes like. So what, what are your neighbors growing? And what do they think? I mean, do you interact with them uh, in, in any way? Cotton, peanuts, soybeans, corn. Those are the crops that you're going to see everywhere around here. You'll see everyone has, they have a little bit of land. They grow their collards and mustards and turnips and cucumbers and tomatoes and squash and zucchini and maybe some bell peppers, some sweet potatoes and potatoes and onions in the fall. But that's for their home, you know. But far as, like I said, I have to go all the way to a, a Savannah to go to our organic market. So folks are pretty locked in to just dealing with the food as they've been growing it for the last 50, 60 years and saying that's okay. Not looking at the fact that cancer rate has jumped tremendously and other, you know, diabetes and everything else. And I think it's directly correlated to our food. Jahi, I wonder if we can go back for a second to the prison industrial complex. You know, I was thinking when we talked about a week ago on the phone and also just listening to you today that the thing about the prison farm labor story that is complicated and interesting is that on the one hand, it's this extremely uncomfortable echo. I mean, this is a country whose economy and food system is built on slave labor. And so the fact that we have 30,000 in prison workers working on food production, a disproportionately African-American, because the prison population is disproportionately African-American, is extremely uncomfortable. You know, the $3 a day, people like, you know, literally under surveillance, lacking freedom, working in the food system, is a pretty gross echo to the past. On the other hand, you know, you're explaining the humane aspects of it, getting to be outside, getting to do useful work, getting access to food that's way better than the, the standard prison food. And I'm wondering if you could just think out loud a little bit about how the system could be made more just and humane. Could we have a prison labor on farm system that isn't uncomfortable and hearkening back to these, you know, really bad old days? Well, I mean, constitutionally, they still look at us as slaves and they have it in the Constitution. Or this is one exception where slavery is accepted is in prison. So, you know, it connects you to that past that Roger was just speaking on. And, and it's hard for them to let that go, especially here in the South. So changing that dynamic would be very, very challenging because constitutionally it's still accepted and it's such a free source of labor or a very, very cheap source of labor that I don't see where they'll be too willing to let that go. In terms of how it could be better, well, there is a lot of ways that it could be better. Each prison has enough room to grow and support pretty much itself. And then on the bigger prisons, you know, you could still produce food, give guys a better quality of food, and a better wage. 
But, again, that's one of those situations where if it's not broken as far as they're looking at it, why fix it? You know, this thing is working fine for us. And constitutionally, we can do this. So we have to have a longer conversation about, you know, changing those dynamics. I have just one last question. I know we're, we're getting toward the end of our conversation, but, and this is kind of personal, but it breaks my heart that your mom passed while you were in prison. And for you to come out of prison and not have a mother there to welcome you home is like really devastating. And I'm, I also wonder about the absence of women on these farms. Like it sounds like there, there are no women in the prison system that are farming with you, but I could be mistaken, but I don't think there are. No, there are. And then I, I wonder about the dynamic of your farm and where women are and what it's like to not have, you know, your mother welcome you home or not have women be a part of that system. And just talk about what that's like. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because it needs to be spoken on. Here on this farm, far back as I can remember, my great-grandmother being the matriarch, yes, she had sons. Some of them lived in other places. And when I come around, it was really just one still working the farm. The rest were women. I mean, my maternal side of the farm, that's who ran this farm. That's who ran this farm as a business. I, I remember my dad, we were riding down here one year, and he was just sharing with me that, because all of them, let me see, my grandmother and my, probably about four great aunts, my grandmother's sisters, were all were educators and teachers down here. And then my mother became one, and my sister is a teacher. So they were very smart. And my dad was bragging about the fact that how my grandmother, she was basically, she would have been like a financial planner, because I do remember a lot of them getting uh, dividend checks from the farm. So it was a real business as well. It was the females that cultivated all of this to the point it's not at now. Coming home and not being able to spend my time with my mom, that was devastating for me. And I'll share with you that um, I had missed their funeral only because of a miscommunication. And so I had this void in me where, you know, I, I didn't have any closure. And so when I came home, I, I went into the room with she, her, her room, and it was my dad had left it alone. It was basically like my mom could come back and be just as comfortable as she was before she left in her room, knowing everything, the same place. And I noticed this box that she was cremated, and I noticed this box that was on a shelf, and it, I just kept gravitating to this box for a couple-day period. Finally, I had enough of it, and I just said, man, what is this box? And I looked at it. Oh, man. Mm. And it said, the remains of Anne Marie Ellis. And I looked at the side of the box, and it said, the name of the cremation service. And I was furious with my brother and sister. I was like, you didn't, you haven't even put mama in the oven. You know what I'm saying? And she always told me she wanted to be buried at the feet of her mother. Well, God allowed me to have enough money to bring my mom down here and to bury at the feet of her mother. Found the same place that put the other headstones in. And we had our own service. And it was a beautiful service. I finally got closure. And I feel very, very much connected to not only my mom, because whenever I get in the low, I can walk about 40 yards to our family cemetery and be there and draw strength from, from her and them. That's so great. 
Is there anything else before we go in the last couple minutes you'd like to add? Or how can people help or get involved? And one thing, you know, like my sister, she's been a vegetarian. My nephew is probably about 42. So she's been a vegetarian probably 45 years maybe. And she would always get on me about, you know, going to the co-op or going to Whole Foods or going to different places to get good organic food. And I tell folks, I had a conversation with my sister, and I said, how do you know your food is organic? And she said, well, because they say it. it's organic on the sign. And I kind of chuckled because I've seen things <laughs> in this industry. And I said, sis, the only way that you can know that your food is organic is you have to either grow it yourself or be intimate with an organic farmer. And so a lot of folks want organic food or a lot of folks will pay extra for the organic food. But ladies and gentlemen, that doesn't always mean it's organic. And so we have to take more ownership of our food. So therefore, even if you're not wanting to participate in farming, you have to be more supportive of the farmers where your food comes from and and more interconnected with them. Because, you know, just because it has a label on it, and I'm going to say this again, just because it has a label on it doesn't mean it's organic. And for you to pay extra for something that says organic and it's not organic, that's a greater travel. But if you're just depending on, you know, these organic certification people or inspectors or whatever, that's not guaranteeing organic food. So you really need to take more ownership in the food that you're taking in your body by being part of uh, small farms and helping support small farms. That's great. Thank you so much for taking the time. This was really yeah, wonderful. Thanks, it was amazing. Okay. All right. Thank you, Thank you, you guys. Great talking to you. For more on The Secret Ingredient Podcast, visit our website. It's thesecretingredient.org. And please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review if you want to while you're there. It really helps us out. Raj Patel is the author of A History of the World and Seven Cheap Things and a professor also at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. And Tom Philpot is the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones Magazine. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. Thanks for listening. KUT always puts you first, even during a public health crisis. The highest priority is to deliver accurate information to you and to this community. And it's listener support that makes this critical work possible. Give today at KUT.org. And thanks.